This episode of the National Trust podcast was made possible by Cotswold Outdoors, walking partner for the National Trust. You're listening to the National Trust podcast. I'm Kate Martin, a National Trust Ranger. In this season, we're going to be going on some adventures along windswept coast paths and wild heathland. My colleague, James Grasby, will be taking you around some world-class collections and Alan Power will be your guide through some of the Trust's most spectacular gardens. In this episode, we're heading to the dramatic Northumberland coast, up in the northeast, where the National Trust cares for about 20 miles of iconic coastline. We're not gonna have time to cover it all, so we'll be taking a short walk around the beach known as Long Nanny, an interesting mix of sand dunes, salt marsh and shingle bordered by a freshwater stream. This stunning stretch of coastline is a really important breeding ground for several bird species and a rich patchwork of habitats makes it a really great place to walk amongst wildlife. So what are we waiting for? Strap on your walking boots and come and join me. We've come here down by the beach into a, an area of nicely gently undulating sand dunes and I'm hoping to meet Gwen Potter who's the countryside manager here who's going to be able to tell me a little bit about this really interesting and diverse site and also tell me a little bit about what it takes to look after such a special place and here she is now hiya Gwen hello nice to see you we're going to have a little wander through the dunes and we're going to have a look at some of the plants that we find in here and maybe talk a little bit about how we manage those dunes. And then we'll head to our shorebeds and find out about some of the birds that use that really, really special site at the Long Nanny. And then we'll go further north along the coast path and continue along the publicly accessible area. Where? slogging up a sand dune it's never easy walking up sand dunes but we're just going up obviously on the top uh, and walking through some lovely marron grass marron grass is an amazing grass actually when you sort of move through it's actually quite spiky isn't it you almost feel like it's cutting you when you're moving through it if, if you touch it but it's kind of really really folded in so inside it's got these ridges and it's very folded over and that's an adaptation to deal with the salt air but it's actually really beautiful as well when you look at it close up and you see the inside and the different colours on either side and it's lovely to see when you do walk up dunes like this that sort of variation between the different colours I think a lot of people think sand dunes are all a bit monotone a little bit dull but the thing with sand dunes is you have to put the effort into it. If you put the effort into sand dunes, take the time, look a little bit more closely. The variety and diversity of plant life, animal life and bird life that you see is incredibly rewarding. We quite often get orchids in here and it's just full of flowers and it's just a sea of sort of pink and white and orange and yellow and we also get wax caps later in the year which are like little jewels in the grass are absolutely beautiful and they're little basically mushrooms but they're really shiny and sort of orange and yellow and green and they're gorgeous and this one's called bloody cranesbill 
you can't imagine that it's a wild flower. It looks like a garden flower. It looks like it's been cultivated um, over hundreds of years. And it has been cultivated, but just by nature. It's like the most neon pink you can imagine. And it's part of the geranium family. So it's got that really, really gorgeous sort of wide sort of row of petals around it. It's absolutely beautiful. Just coming up to a, a hawthorn here in full bloom and then these lovely big white flowers. They almost look like tiny, tiny little wild roses. And the one thing about hawthorn in full bloom, if you ever get close, is the smell. It's a, it's a funny sort of sweet smell it produces. But apparently, I was told, it's the same chemical that produces the sweet smell of hawthorn that's released by dead bodies. Oh, lovely. Apparently. I used to live up in Scotland and somebody I worked with there was very superstitious and said, you never took hawthorn into your house. Uh, and it was always seen as bad luck because there was two things. Firstly, quite often it was planted by graves, apparently in order to catch the souls of the dead as they left. And the other thing it was because of this smell, again, it was kind of inviting death into your house. I Sorry, if I ruined even it. I know you? that, so you've ruined the smell of hawthorns <laughs> for me forever now. Wow, look at that. Just now coming out of the sand dunes, and what a glorious beach I've got in front of me. It's quite rough out there today, so the North Sea is looking really tumultuous. Little bit grey in colour with a blue tinge, and then these big white breakers coming in. In front of that, I've got a golden sandy beach and there's always a ready golden colour to the sand up here on the Northumberland coast, which I just don't think you get anywhere else in the UK. The beach in front of me is a huge wide expanse. Over to my right, I've got the sort of rocky area heading down towards Low Newton. And then over to my left, I've got this lovely curving sweet round with big golden sand dunes going back right the way to the headland at Beadnell. It really is a stunning beach. Quite quiet this morning. There's a few dog walkers out, an intrepid family who've managed to set themselves up with a windbreak. They might need it today, but it really is a glorious beach here. Wow, I think I've just heard and seen my first Arctic turn, which is fantastic. So I'm guessing we must be getting close to the turn breeding site now. Yeah, we're not too far at all, so I'll hand you over to Jane, who's our ranger for the coast here. So my name's Jane Lancaster. I'm a coastal ranger for the National Trust up here on the Northumberland coast. As a young child, my family came here every year for at least two weeks since literally being a baby. So I get memories of being a child almost every day when I actually walk the same beach that I explored with my younger brother and older sister. So basically it's a childhood dream come true. So what we're doing, we've just come into High Newton by the sea. So we're actually walking just short of a kilometre. We've got a beautiful wide open beach. So we're walking towards a secret little pocket of wildlife where we've got the second rarest UK seabird, which is the little terns. We can see we've roped off 
to steer people away from the breeding birds. And the National Trust has looked after this site for, this is the 41st year, so it was 1977, the first time that little terns were seen here. Um, and the numbers were really low. So what we do, we try and help the little terns to have a productive breeding season. Figures from yesterday, we've got 34 little tern nests that we know about. We've probably got between 1,500 and 2,000 pairs of Arctic terns. I'm Hannah Oldale, I'm a volunteer down here at the turn site. What I'm doing here is trying to speak to the public, people who live here, people who come on holiday here, give them a bit of information about the turn site and keeping their dogs on the lead, things like that, that's important. And if there's any problems, it means I can flag up to the rangers that are based further up the beach. I spoke to a couple of men who are here on holiday who were out walking their dogs. They were coming from Beadnell at the far end of the beach and walking right down to Craster. And I've spoken to one family who are very interested in birds in particular and they're here on holiday as well and already knew about the birds here, about the breeding site and they were just walking through to come and have a look. I can't think of anywhere else I'd rather look at wildlife. I'm studying animal management at the moment and people are looking at African wildlife and things like that and I can't think of anywhere better to look after the wildlife than actually on my doorstep. People look out the front doors and don't realise what's there, they take it for granted, they don't realise how rare the birds are that they have here and the rest of the wildlife as well and I think it's a fabulous place to come and have a look at. Walking through the gate, just coming into the, the turn site now, just coming over the brow of the hill. I can see some tents in the distance. So what this is, this area has got lots of designations without going into them all. A triple SI is a special site of scientific interest. The only people who were allowed to camp here on these dunes are the rangers who live and work here. So what we'll do, we'll go over and we'll see if one of them has got a, a couple of minutes to chat and just explain to you what they've done, what the scientific work that we're doing is and why we do it. My name's Jake Taylor-Bruce, I'm one of the assistant rangers here at the Long Nanny Turn site. And from what I gather, this is what you guys call home. So what is it like living in a tent for three months? Oh, <laughs> it's, it's actually really wonderful. It's, I love it. Why is it important that somebody's always on the watch here? There's a whole world that comes out at night. Quite recently, we've been seeing fox tracks around near the site. Foxes can be a major predator for the eggs and the chicks and some of the adult birds as well. So just having a human presence out to deter a fox if it comes by. Is it all about predators then here and keeping predators and just monitoring the birds or is there other elements to your job as well? One of our biggest worries here is the tides. We'll have some very, very high spring tides coming through and those have the potential to wash into parts of the colonies. We actually raise some of the little turn eggs up onto boxes. Uh, we use these big fishing crates. We pack them down with sand and then a layer of grass and then more sand down on top. And then we recreate exactly, and we've gotten very good at this, the nest that the little terns make to lay their eggs in. So we put all the little bits of shell that might be around it, the bits of seaweed, the bits of stone, they all go back in exactly the right position so that when the parent bird flies over and looks down, it sees its nest created in, you know, in exactly the right way 
but it's just that bit higher off the sand. So hopefully when the tide washes in, it just washes around the box and it doesn't wash the eggs away. And obviously that is a very interventionist thing that we do here, but given that the little terns are so rare in the UK, that kind of intervention might really be necessary. And it seems to have really helped the bird numbers to increase over the last sort of 30 or 40 years. Hi, my name's Verity Brosnan and I'm an assistant ranger at Long Nanny National Trust site. We have a little platform here and this is where you can view really closely the Arctic Tern. So how to identify the Arctic Tern is it has a black head, it has a really red bill, like a really nice ruby red bill, and it has very sort of grey plumage. It's a lot longer than the little tern. It also has really stubby little legs, so it waddles about a little bit more. <laughs> I mean, Arctic terns are one of the species that you get here. There's also little terns and then the ring plover, I believe. So what's the difference then? You've got the little tern and the ring plover. How do you identify those? So with the little tern, it's a lot smaller than the Arctic. It has like a bandit's robber sort of face mask across its eyes. It's considerably smaller and it's also a lighter coloration from the sort of dark gray plumage of the Arctic. With the ringed plover, that is quite a different bird altogether. So the ringed plover has a tiny little bill. It's orange and it has a really classic ring around its neck and a ring around its eye. And it waddles about in the seaweed. And they are only here for three months of a year. So where do they come from and where do they go? The Arctic tern is the longest migratory bird in the whole of the world. So it travels great distances. So it comes up from Antarctica and we've actually had a couple that we've ringed from this site and they've gone all the way down to like Australia and been found in Australia and then they come back up. Now the Arctic tern can live up to 31 years to 36, so it does this every single year. So it's incredible, it clocks up so many miles, I think it's like an 80,000 trip in miles and 96,000 in kilometres. Whereas the little tern, they come up from West Africa. So they travel from West Africa all the way up and then onto the different shores across the northeast coast of the UK, can go up to Scotland and they can also go across to Wales and up around some suitable beaches there. I'm Alan, Alan Watson, and I'm one of the volunteers on the turn site at the Long Nanny. So throughout the days, visitors come and go, the volunteers talk to them about the birds and explain the site while the rangers get on with the jobs that they need to do with the birds. So it's supporting the rangers really so that they can do the, the frontline stuff with the birds here. There's a regular group of volunteers that work every Wednesday for the trust here, the Wednesday Club, and we come out and do the physical work before the birds and the rangers arrive. So it's great because it means I come here and put all the ropes out with the, with the team before there's any birds silent skies and then suddenly you know a week later the skies are full of the birds and the rangers are here and the whole site kicks off so it's it's wonderful to see it from nothing and then you know the whole thing take off and uh, the season progress really good so what made you want to volunteer is it the wildlife is it just being out here it, or is it a bit of everything it is a bit of everything you know i'm born and bred on the coast and all my life i've spent hours on the coast and enjoyed it even when I was working, because I didn't work in this sort of 
environment at all. Coming to the coast here, in particular the National Trust bits, was where I always got my recreation, peace and quiet. So when I retired from work, I thought, well, I've got to do some volunteering, and it was dead easy. I thought, well, I've got to do something on the coast, which is how I got involved here. So it's partly that for me, but it's also, you know, it's just a brilliant place to be. And seeing the birds right through the season is wonderful. You know, you see them come and the incubation and then the young and all the rest. It's proper soap opera, it's, it's amazing. You get very attached to them, you know, you watch them. I mean, I come every, I'm not living here like the Rangers, but I come every Tuesday, week in, week out for three months. And you get attached to them, you watch them, you see all the display and the courtship going on and the pairing up and the carrying on. Then the silence like now when they're incubating, it's calm and peaceful. Then mayhem when the young are out. And then, of course, the predators, which uh, come and go and help themselves to a few of them. So you get you get very attached to them. And when the site goes silent at the end of July, early August, it's weird. It's really weird. Uh, but, you know, things go round and come round and they'll be here again next year. So, and so will I. <laughs> All been well. <laughs> Why wouldn't you do it? It's fantastic. And I'm guessing it's all different types of people who come. You know, obviously some people here have got binoculars and telescopes and there's some lanky looking people walking towards Let's see if they'll talk to us. Yeah, it's Ian and I've been uh, coming here deliberately to see the little turns and the Arctic turns, knowing that you'd get really, really good views. Simple as that. It's only the second time I've done it though, but uh, I knew they were here. What makes this area so special for visitors like yourself? Just the fact that you know you're going to get such good close-up views of the little turns and they're just there on the boxes and the fact it's wardened as well. If you're not sure exactly where to look, then they'll say, try that one, look at that box, look there, look there. So even with this wind on, they're facing into the wind, but uh, they're turning around every so often so you can see the white heads, which is fantastic. Proper birders' paradise then? I would think that's absolutely accurate. Absolutely accurate, yeah, yeah. What more could you want? <laughs> it is a really fascinating little place. You've got this beautiful stretch of beach here and you probably wouldn't realise at first look that there is this really interesting little site where you've got these rare birds that are breeding. A real highlight for me is it's been able to get so close to these rare birds and this fantastic wildlife and also all the beautiful, stunning little flowers that we've seen as we've walked through. They bring this beautiful splash of colour into the dunes. There's something so delightful about being in amongst the noise, the colour, you know, everything about the smell of the sea, the smell of the birds even. It's really intoxicating, this place, and I can totally understand why people come back and visit it time and time again. And it is a fantastic place to visit. You know, it's really easily accessible, whether you're coming by car and parking and walking, you can come by train, so not too far away, get the bus to this place. It's a very, very easy walk. You know, we're no more than a mile from Beadnall. You can either come along the beach or you can come along the coastal path at the back. I am really, really delighted to have come here and I would absolutely invite everybody to come. Any time of year it's beautiful, but particularly during this breeding season, between May and June, July, it really is worth a visit.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. Join us in two weeks' time when we'll be hopping on a boat to the remote Farne Islands. Don't forget to subscribe to the series and please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I look forward to you joining me on our next adventure. Until then, from me, Kate Martin, goodbye. This episode of the National Trust podcast was made possible by Cotswold Outdoor, walking partner for the National Trust. In July, the National Trust marks the centenary of female suffrage in the UK with a unique new podcast series called Women and Power. Women and Power charts the course of the suffrage movement from its beginnings right up to the present day. Throughout this history, National Trust people and places have witnessed the hushed conversations, hidden heroes and furious infighting of some of the suffrage movement's key figures. In this podcast, we delve into our archives to uncover the seldom told stories of maids, mill workers, politicians and even royalty who fought and campaigned to help shape the world we live in today. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Women and Power on Apple Podcasts or visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash suffrage podcast. I'm Kirsty Ward and this is Women and Power, a podcast from the National Trust. Thank you.